Father, all our hope is, is in Christ, the sinless Savior. Father, may I pray that we would see that it's nothing in our hands we bring, but simply to the cross we cling. Because before the throne of God above, we have our great high priest who intercedes for us. Father, even when we don't even know how to pray, God, the Spirit intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. Father, I pray that we would leave this place, as Charles Wesley said, God, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Father, how is it that we, God, who caused your death, how is it that we are are made right and reconciled to you? We don't know, but we would pray God, that we would, would leave this place marveling and rejoicing in our, our sinless Savior who died for us to make us right with you apart from nothing that we've done, but you made him who knew no sin to be sin for us and that we, we do rejoice, O oh Lord. So be with us now. God, teach us, guide us, help me. In Jesus' name, pray. Amen. Well, here at Rock Valley Bible Church, most all of you know um, if you're visiting with us, maybe you don't know this or realize the, the depth of this, but we are committed to expository preaching at our church, which, which means basically that what we want to do is we want to take the scripture and, and bring it forth and let it rule and reign and let it have um, the dominance in our, our messages on, on Sunday mornings, right? that is, right, preaching sequentially through books of the Bible, um, with an aim to bring the original meaning to bear and then appropriate application from that. And, and, and that might be contrasted with a, a topical approach that just picks topics and then uses the Bible to support the, the topic. And, and some of the advantages of uh, preaching expositionally is this, I believe, is that it really enables the congregation to hear the Word of God. I mean, expository, expository preaching, our, our aim is not to preach our thoughts, not to preach our topic, not to preach what we want, but to preach God's thoughts and, and God's ideas, letting the biblical authors speak in their flow of thought and in their reasoning and in their arguments, paying attention to their points of emphasis and paying attention to their applications. Our aim is to let the biblical authors say what they said and thus in many ways, we let God speak. We hear His voice. Another advantage of expository preaching is it, is it teaches a congregation properly how to handle the Word. I mean, I know that what I do week in, week out, every Sunday is put before you a model of how it is that you should interpret the Scriptures. Right? Demonstrate them week in, week out. To, to model observations from the text. To model how to arrive at interpretations from the text. And how to arrive at proper applications from the text. And, and over time, what it does, it creates you all to be better readers of the Bible. Better studiers of the Bible. Individually and then collectively as a whole. Another advantage, expository preaching, it, it builds a biblically literate community where every week the idea is just to, to bite off just a little chunk of the Bible. And then next week we get the next chunk, and the next week we get the next chunk, and the next week we get the next chunk, and the next chunk, and the next chunk, and, the next chunk, and pretty soon we get a book. And, and then we get another book, and then we get another book, and then we get another book. I, I remember one time uh, some, some folks coming visiting our church. This was 10 years ago. I was preaching through First Peter. And they showed up at church, and I preached my first message on First Peter, and, and, and it was a good message, right? Suffer now, glory later is the, the message of, of First Peter. And, and the family kind of decided to stay, and they were expecting like four weeks in First Peter, and then we'd move on to something else. And, and they were like 
four months into it and realizing that we were in chapter two or chapter three and not realizing that. But, but eventually they, they left, sadly. But it was something where kind of they didn't realize, but to see just how big a scope that is. And, and we've been in Romans. We've been in there six months. And we are maybe another year and a half or so just, just working through. And by the end of that time, we're all going to have a better understanding of Romans. We might know the Bible better week in, week out, month in, month out. Uh, another benefit of expository preaching is preaching's balanced. We don't fall back on our regular topics, the things that we deem most important, neglecting others, or, or going to our favorite verses and neglecting other verses. You know, we've we got to deal with the tough verses as they go right on through. I mean, there are plenty of verses I say, I'd rather just not deal with that one, but if it comes on through, then we've got we to gotta deal with that. Also, it, it helps me as a, as a preacher. Another benefit of expository preaching is that, is that uh, whenever one of those text toughs come, text, tough texts come and it's going to point straight at us, None of you are going to say, oh, there's Steve just on his hobby horse. He just wants to, whatever, get at us. No, it's like in God's sovereignty, that's right right where it is. Uh, but it also helps a preacher in that I don't have to struggle when I'm preaching next week. I know what I am. There are some times we do topical series according to the need of the congregation, but mostly we just kind of plug right on and keep right on going. It's helpful, helpful for us. But also when we're finished preaching, we all know the Bible better, and nobody knows it learns more than I do in the midst of, of, of teaching. It's really a, a, a secret. If you want to learn something, teach it. That's why if you want to learn the Bible, then find someone else to teach it to, to pass it on, right? To, to be engaged in some sort of passing it on side type of ministry. You will learn the Bible far better than if you just sit back and listen. Now, there are dan- dangers to expository preaching. I mean, one danger is um, a pastor might not be gifted to preach that way. And you might be thinking, oh, this is really bad, like, oh, they're, they're not gifted. But I think of, like, C.H. Spurgeon, probably the greatest preacher in the history of the English church. And he never preached expositorily because he was gifted in another way. And God used him to save tens of thousands, of hundreds of thousands. His sermons are still read today. Another disadvantage, sermons can easily turn into lectures. If you forget that there's a proclamation happening when God's word is, is proclaimed. Uh, another um, a danger might be that, that it misses glaring needs of the congregation, right? There might be some big issue that needs to be addressed, and it's not addressed because we're just working through the text. Now, hopefully, in the Spirit of God, we are sensitive to that when, when bigger issues come up. So say maybe Christmas time, right? We took a month off at Christmas time to do some things. This last summer, we were in the one another. So it's not that topical preaching is bad. It's just our diet. It's got to be expository preaching, but perhaps one of the greatest dangers is this, is that we can get so absorbed in the details that we miss the big picture. Right? In other words, right, we miss the forest for the sake of the trees. And this is particularly a problem if your preaching is too slow. I mean, I think about two years in Romans is pretty slow. That's why it's important to keep the big picture in mind. This is why I try to keep this ever before us, that we might realize that this is the theme of the book of Romans. It's eager to preach the gospel. That was Paul's heart in Romans chapter 1, verse 15. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. That's the passion of Paul. I mean, the, the, the book is all about the gospel, but he's a missionary looking for missionary support, wanting to preach the gospel far and wide beyond where Spain is in Illyricum. He wants to go way out there, and he also wants to preach it in Rome. And pity us if we just learn the gospel and keep it to ourselves. It ought to stir us on. It's the application, really, that comes from Romans. Are, are you preaching the gospel? Are you eager to preach the gospel? Are you talking to others about 
Christ. And really, regardless of the text of Romans, to keep the big picture in mind, it's where the application really needs to come. Well, you say, well, what is the gospel? If I'm eager to preach the gospel, what is it? Well, I've outlined Romans in six S words there. Sin, salvation, sanctification, security, sovereignty, service. And in case you can't read that, there they are. Right, nice and big. Sin, salvation, sanctification, security, and, and service. And these words really are, are the, um, the outline of the Romans, of the book of Romans. That uh, chapters 1 through 3, we are all sinners. Chapters 4 and 5, that God has provided us a way of salvation in Christ. Chapters 6 and 7, that we are, uh, pursue sanctification Chapter 8, uh, our salvation is secure in Christ. Chapters 9 through 11, the sovereignty of God in this whole plan. And in chapters 12 through 16, the, the service that God requires us of, calls us to, really. And, and one of the drawbacks of walking slowly through Rome is we, we miss the flow. I mean, think about those in Rome. They didn't have this danger. I mean, because when Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, it was brought, it was delivered, and presumably it was publicly read to the whole church. And so you read Romans out loud. It takes about an hour, maybe just a touch over an hour. And these themes would have gone through. The, the Romans would have heard of their, their sin and how dark it is. But yet, just ten minutes later, they would have heard the salvation of everything that God provides. And, and then they would have been pressed to sanctification and pursuing that in 6 and 7. And then the glorious chapter 8, just see so you're secure in Christ. Because it's all according to God's sovereignty, 9 through 11. And this is how to serve in the church. And so they would have heard the, the whole scope, really, of the gospel in about an hour or so. And here we are at Rock Valley Bible Church, right, six months into it. And, and we're, just, we're, we're over here someplace, right? And slowly, slowly working our way uh, to the right. It's my 22nd sermon here this morning. And I've... I'm, I'm halfway through the second theme. We've been at it for a, a month and a half, and here in a couple of weeks we're going to look at sanctification. Now, so there's a danger, right, that, that right, we're just in one. But, but be encouraged by that. Just know that as I've preached through these things, I haven't, haven't lost sight of, of Romans. Um, because right when we're in the sin section, I just didn't leave us leaving this place Every week, like, oh, whoa, is me. I'm a, I'm a sinner. Whoa, is me, right? We, didn't, we weren't like two months of misery at Rock Valley Bible Church. There was hope in Jesus that I, I did share. I'm sure every message, I don't want you leaving like in despair without hope. Now, if you're not looking to that hope, I hope you're in despair. But if you're looking to the hope of Christ, there's, there's no reason to, to leave in despair. But, but when we, we brought about sin, we went, we went deep. Right? Just what Paul was saying about how bad we are. That all of us have gone our own way. Right? There's none of us who does good. There's not even one, Romans 3, 10 through 12, straight from the Old Testament. So it's not that we've neglected other areas of Romans. I've tried to keep it all in context. Also, it's not that it's been unproductive. I mean, I trust that God's bearing fruit as we look each week. Just little by little in, in different passages, just a bit deeper understanding of what Romans is. That eventually, here's even, even what, I, what I would argue, is that by the time we're done with Romans, you will stand in a position better to understand Romans than did the original Romans. 
just by the sheer time you spent in it, by the verses you memorized, by the themes you've caught. When they heard it for the first time, a lot of this was whatever new and trying to put it all together. But if we go through this better and better, you'll be better equipped than they were to understand exactly what it's talking about today. So why do I bring all this up? Okay. Um, one is to just reaffirm our, our heart for expository preaching. But, but another is in our text today, Paul's going to bring these grand themes, really, of the gospel down into short verses. He's going to revisit the doctrine of sin. He's going to show the doctrine of salvation. He's going to call us to live a life of sanctification. He's not only going to do it once. He's not only going to do it twice. But wait, there's more. He's going to do it even three times. He's going to cycle through the, the same sort of pattern, telling us of our sin and then telling us of the salvation that God has provided. If you will, he is going to be going the, the gospel like three times through the whole thing. My message is entitled, Salvation Summaries. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, page 942 in your pew Bible. Salvation Summaries. This is what Paul is doing. He's going to summarize the gospel three times. What, what might take us two years, what might take all of Romans reading an hour, Paul's going to do this three times in just a few six short verses I want to read our text, verses 6 through 11. It says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for, that, for us. Since there we have been since therefore we have been justified by his blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life more than that we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation now before we dig into the the details of this passage I want for you to to think a bit about the structure of the passage. I've put it all right up there for us, just right there on the screen. And just think about the structure, because the, and you see the, these, these three uh, cycles, these three repetitions. Okay, Three times Paul speaks about our condition. He says in verse 6, while we were weak. He says in verse 8, while we were still sinners. He says in verse 10, while we were enemies. This was our, this was our state before God. We were weak. We were sinful, we were enemies. And three times in these verses, Paul speaks of the death of Christ. Right there in verse 6, that he died for the ungodly. Verse 8, he died for us. And verse 10 speaks about the death of his son. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And each of those verses, each of those phrases, that summarizes the gospel. Right? That we, when we were weak, Christ died for us. And when we were sinners, Christ died for us. And when we are his enemies, Christ died for us. That's really the gospel. It's when we're weak, it's when we're helpless, we're hopeless, we're sinning against the Lord, we're hostile to God. Jesus in his grace came and died for us. And in his death, he solved our problems that we could never solve on our own. We were weak and helpless. Christ came to be strong for us. And we're sinners in need of forgiveness. Christ came to die for sins in our place, justifying us. 
And we were enemies with God. Christ came to reconcile us to God. So we're no longer enemies, but we're at peace with God, like we talked about last week. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a gospel. It's repeated three times. And so accordingly, I've called my message this morning, Salvation Summaries. And we're just going to go through just three times, just thinking about the gospel and thinking about what Paul is talking about. And I think in some regards, Paul's intent here is he's, he's talking about Romans, but lest we lose sight of the forest because of the trees, he's given us a, a big overview of what the gospel is of our salvation. Well, here's, here's my first point, simply this, right? While we were weak, verse 6, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Paul describes here being weak. Now, he's not talking about physical strength. Okay? He's not talking about little children who haven't yet grown up to adulthood and who can't lift the heavy box for their parents they are trying to move around or can't move the piano or the sofa. We're not, we're not talking about that weak. We're talking about spiritual weakness. And the idea, the idea here is that we're so weak that we are helpless can't do anything for ourselves. In fact, that's how the New American Standard translates this. Romans 5, 6. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The idea here is that we are incapable. While we were incapable, while we had no inabilities in ourselves, while we were incapable at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You know, some people think and say, well, God helps those who help themselves. Well, this verse kind of speaks the contrary to that. God helps those who cannot hope themselves. And God helps those who are incapable of helping themselves. And listen, and this is, this is wonderful news. Because God isn't saying, okay, well, I help those who help themselves. So why don't you show forth some effort? Why don't you give it a go? Come on. Come on. Give it a little try. Let's see. Come on. And then once you start, then I'll, I'll bring you the rest of the way. No, we are, are weak. We are helpless, incapable. And that's precisely when God comes and saves us. The, the picture, to use a physical illustration, okay, is, is a hospital bed. Not, not just a any hospital bed. I'm thinking ICU. You know, when, when someone's on a ventilator and they've got all these uh, things and tubes sticking in and out of them, that's the picture we're talking about when we were weak. We're on the hospital bed. And I'm not sure if you ever noticed those in the ICU. They, they can't do much for themselves. Uh, the ventilator's breathing for them because they're helpless and weak. Um, they, they can't eat or drink for themselves sometimes. Right? They got stuff. They got tracheotomies. They got things in their mouth. They got, so the IV. They, they can't give themselves an IV. They can't eat, but they, they get their liquid and food through the, the IVs. And they're really at the mercy of, of the nurse who cares for them and makes their beds and empties their bedpans. And it's just not, not a pretty sight. Well, so is it with us in our spiritual state, weak and helpless, totally incapable of saving ourselves. And, and in fact, though, that you need to really come to this place in your own life where you realize that you're, you're totally incapable of saving yourself. Like, you come to a point of desperation and, and say, as Paul does in, in Romans chapter 7, somewhere he says, wretched man that I am, verse 25. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, 
Who will deliver me from this body of death? I can't do anything. I'm a wretched man. I'm incapable of fulfilling the law's demands. And if that's you, it's exactly where God wants you. Because it's when we are weak that God saves us. It's when we understand we are weak that we make our first step to salvation. When you read the law and see your sin and realize that Romans 3.20 through the law comes a knowledge of sin and, and you know your weakness, then you simply need to embrace what God has done for you at the cross. Verse 6, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Now the ungodly there I believe is just a synonym for the weak kind of defines who the weak are. The weak are the, the sinful people, the ungodly people, the people who aren't walking in righteous ways. And what Jesus did on the cross is he did what we in of ourselves were unable to do, unable to obtain our righteousness through our own efforts. Romans chapter 8, verse 3, right, that, that um, uh, speaks there, that God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the flesh, he condemns sin in the flesh. In other words, the, the law was given, it could never bring about righteousness. And so Christ came to do what the law couldn't do. In and of ourselves, we can't satisfy the, the demands of a law. And instead, when we tried, the law condemned us. But Christ came to reverse that. Romans 8, 3, he condemned sin in the flesh. He came to put away sin, to, to abolish it so it no longer can, can, can condemn us. Like this, this condemning war, the sin, right? The sin, the law comes and condemns us, but Jesus condemns that law and puts it away. That's what Paul's talking about in verse 6 of the text. While we're still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And he did this at the right time. I, I think that's talking about historically, the, the right time. Um, after Adam and, and after Noah and flooding the whole world, and then after choosing Abraham and, and developing this nation for 400 years, and then the law came. And, and Israel, for years, for 1,400 years, said, okay, here's your law. Try to, try to keep it, Israel. They even pledged, Exodus 24, we will keep everything that you say. And, of course, they didn't. They rebelled against the Lord and found themselves at different times of different places. But eventually, even here, the proper time was after centuries of trying to live the law out. Eventually, it's realized it can't. Can't do that. The Jewish nation exiled for their disobedience in Babylon, finally coming back to some disappointments, and now they're back in a land under Roman oppression. And if anything would have brought them to despair, that would have been. Right when they needed a Messiah, at the right time is when Christ came. During the days of the Roman Empire, during the reign of Pontius Pilate, it's when Christ came. He came to redeem us. Galatians 4.4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And there it is. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. When we were weak, he died for us. It's the gospel. And if you're eager to preach the gospel, I just encourage you, memorize Romans 5, 6. While we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for us. I mean, how easy. That one verse evangelism. You, you talk to somebody, you just... You say, well, you know when they talk about church? You say, yeah, well, um, here's the message is that we are weak and incapable, but Christ died for us. And that's it. That's it right there. There's, there's the gospel message. There's one summary. And our call, it's interesting here. Nowhere less, nowhere mentioned. But the call here is to believe, to embrace that.
Let's move on. My second point. While we were weak, while we were sinners. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, now from time to time, the news reports some hero who risked his or her life (coughs) um, and saved other people, putting their own lives on the line. And and this happens with enough regularity. You know what I'm, I'm talking about. I mean, I just did a quick search for these heroes like Santiago Portillo pulled a driver out of a flipped car that was on fire, risking his own life lest it explode. He dragged the, the driver out of that. Or like seven-year-old Salitha Parker, who uh, dove in front of her mother to use her own body as a human shield when her, uh, her mom's ex-boyfriend was angry and shooting at her, giving her life. Though all these people lived, I'm going to show you about here. <coughs> Marcos Ugarte, 14-year-old, saw flames in his neighbor's house, went, got a ladder, climbed it, and rescued a 7-year-old who was on the second floor, risking his own life for that. Or like 90-year-old John Shear, who threw himself in front of a racehorse who was charging directly in front of a 7-year-old, a 5-year-old girl. And he faced two, two years of suffering, and he broke his pelvis, and 90 years old, jumping in front of a racehorse for someone. These are heroes or like Ryan Rosso, 35-year-old homeless man who, who, who saw a woman, right, crazed woman wrestling with a police officer trying to get his gun. It was on top of him, and she, he pulled her off and saved the policeman. Or like, this guy's name, I don't even know. Adisu Anhabu, auto mechanic in Dallas who rescued a woman locked inside a burning car by breaking her window and, par- and pulling her out. That's, that's the aftermath of that car. Or like Henry Ricketts, who dove into a septic tank in Arizona to rescue a two-year-old girl who'd fallen in to to save her life through all the disgusting sewage. Now, some of these situations, I mean, the guy on a ladder um, climbing up, it's not like his life was totally in danger. He was outside, the fire was inside, but yet he he did put his life on the line. Or or jumping in the sewage is kind of more disgusting. But that's sort of the spirit of of what Paul is talking about here in verse 6, verse 7, that one will scarcely die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. There are people who will sacrifice for others, and, and, but it's not all that common. I mean, I'm not sure if any of you have really ultimately sacrificed your life, put your life totally in danger for someone. Maybe there's a story here, but it's not so common. But these are all even in just, just in emergency, right? There, there's some kind of peril and just reacting, and, and they just went and did it to try to help someone who was weak and, and in trouble. But what God did, in verse 8, tops everything, is that God did a little bit like what this is, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died upon the cross for sinners. He He died for those who had disobeyed the law and willingly resisted his will. Now, so what makes what what Jesus did in verse 8 a little bit different than what we're talking about here with these examples. These are mostly strangers and perilous instinct. He didn't know anything about them. But when when Jesus died, we we were sinners. We were hostile against God. God had told us what to do, and we had rebelled, and we had resisted. 
against that. So these people didn't have a lot of prior relationship with a lot of these people, but, but God did, and God knew, and we were sinful going our own way, and despite that, Jesus still came, and he died. All these people still lived. Okay, But when Jesus came, he died. And he died with intentionality. He died with forethought. He knew even before the foundation of the world, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, he was going to die for sinful people. He thought about it a lot. And he chose to come and die rather than just a, in an instant of, of peril. But let me tell you about a story about a guy who, who didn't live to tell about it. This man's name is Arland D. Williams. Maybe you've heard about him. Um, 1982, January 13th, he boarded Air Florida flight, took off in a a blinding snowstorm and uh, crashed into the 14th Street Bridge that crosses the Potomac River near Washington, D.C., and the the plane then plunged into into the river. He happened to be seated in the rear section of the plane that was partially above water, and when the U.S. Park Police um, helicopter arrived to begin the, the rescue efforts, they lowered the line to uh, rescue those survivors who, who were there. And uh, rather than taking the line himself, Arlen Williams right, took the line, tied someone else up to it, gave it a yank, and they took that person away. And next time it came down, the, the, the line came down, and he attached it to someone else, and then they took it away. And each time he refused the line himself. And after six people were saved in this way, the helicopter came back and uh, the tail of the plant had plunged beneath the waters and Arlen Williams was never found. Now that's a, a bit of a picture of what Jesus did. He didn't, he didn't have to die in some regards. I mean, certainly in the decree of God, he, he had to die. But he chose to die. He, he willingly came to die and He rescued others rather than rescuing himself. Rather than living, he gave his life for others. He died in our place. He was our substitute. It was his death for our life. Arlen Williams, right? It was his death for the life of those six people. It's a a beautiful illustration of the gospel. And that's the the scenario that that Romans 8 is talking about, but, but not quite. Because Romans 8 says that God shows his love towards us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. The point here is that verse 7, right? If you have a relationship, you understand someone's righteous and uh, you understand that someone's good. You might die for that one, but the implication is you certainly wouldn't die for people who are sinners. Now, Arlen William wasn't making a, 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 whatever, a, a moral judgment on these people's lives. He was just saving them as a hero would. But Christ did make a moral judgment, and the judgment was bad. And he still came and gave his life for us. Not because we're so worthy of it, not because we deserve release, because we didn't deserve it. We deserve to go down with the plane. But such is the love of God, and such is our salvation. And so are you eager to preach the gospel? How about memorize Romans 5.8? But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's one verse, one verse evangelism. You can talk to somebody and give the gospel message in 10 seconds. Here's the good news, that while we're yet sinners, God God loved us and he died for us. Let's go to my third point. While we were enemies. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Well, I I trust that you can see the progression of Paul's words. He first talks about us being weak. Okay, we're in ICU. We're still alive, but we're pretty weak, and we need everyone to help us. We need God to help us. But, but secondly, he talks to, us, talks to us about being sinners. Now, that can be just right. We're going a wayward way. We're, we're kind of going our own way, bumbling through and stumbling through and just doing a, a lot of bad things. We're breaking the China. You know, we're just kind of, kind of going. But thirdly, he talks about us being enemies. And you can see the progress, what Paul's talking about here. We're coming from one who's simply weak or maybe a passive sinner to one who is more actively rebelling against the Lord. And in that state, God's wrath is upon us, Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So that when we're unrighteous, it's God's anger that's against us. And what verse 10 says here, it's not so much even that, well, we're just like, I don't know why you're angry at me, God. I don't, I don't know why. It's the idea here is that God is angry with us, and we are what? Angry with him. Jonathan Edwards preached, right, sinners in the hands of an angry God. And you could rightly put that, angry sinners in the hands of an angry God. We were angry with God. We were at war with God. He was our enemy, and we, pre-Christ, try to take God down. And you can take God down in many ways, but Romans 1 even speaks about ways you're taking God down. You're not giving Him honor He deserves. He created the whole world, and you're denying Him. You're spitting in His face. Rather than acknowledging Him, you're not giving thanks to Him. Even though He gave you all life and breath and all things, you still got your hand and fist in the air. And you see the anger and the, the wrath of, of mankind in Revelation 16 when the, the bowls of wrath are being poured out upon, upon people because they, they've rebelled against him and God is finally getting their, their vengeance and there's, there's, there's pain and there's heat and there's exhaustion and, and they're still not refusing to acknowledge God and they're still shaking their fists at him and if they could, they'd take a gun out of their pocket and they'd shoot God. It was Nietzsche who said that God is dead, trying to kill God by his literary ways. And that's what it means, that we were his enemies. So, so let me again try to illustrate, okay? Let, let, let's come back to our buddy Arland, all right? Let me retell the story to try to, try to catch just sinners. We're going to talk about enemies now, okay? So, so imagine that when our Arlen Williams arrived on the plane, he was seated first class and, you know, received all the luxuries of flight. But on board comes this guy who's uncapped, shabby clothes, he was drunk. He was obnoxious. And uh, <coughs> as he passed by first class section, he spilled his coffee on Mr. Williams. He's kind of sitting there. He's like, really? And um, when he realized what was taking place, rather than this, this, this man, this drunken man, rather than saying that he was sorry, he accused Arlen Williams of tripping him. Oh, you tripped me. Sorry for doing that. You, you ought to be sorry. He's yelling at him, accusing him, right, uh, of being hateful and prejudiced and irresponsible and you know, not worthy to be on this flight, and continuing his rage, and finally said, you need to sit in my seat. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit here. And so finally he said, well, if that's what you want. And so Arlen went to the back of the plane, which is why he was in the back of the plane in my imagined story. 
because he deserved first class, but he wasn't. And so without a word of argument, he goes back there. Now imagine the plane crashed, right? and, the, and the helicopters copters were there with the lifeline, and, and this loud, obnoxious antagonist comes there. And imagine Arlen Williams hooking this guy up and having him go. Drunk as could be, maybe he's passed out, but you don't even know what's happening. It's only because of incredible love or incredible grace within him that would, would do any type of thing. But that's, that's beginning to get at what, it, what we're talking about here, about, about God saving us when we're his enemies. We're, we're that obnoxious, drunken man blaming everybody else. That's when God came to die for us. Verse 10, while we were enemies. And it says while we were enemies, right? Verse 9 basically clues in, brings in the, the, the themes of Romans 1 through 4. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Justification has been talking about Romans chapter 4, right? We, we believe in God and our faith goes up and his righteousness comes down. Therefore we are justified in his sight. And since we've been justified, and it's through the blood of Jesus, right, by his death, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So, so our, our, our justification then means if we've been justified, so how much more we're going to be saved by his life, his resurrected power in us? Certainly we will. And if, while we're enemies... We are reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. And you can see where I talk about salvation uh, summaries. This is, again, his salvation. We shall be saved from our life in that way. And I think the thrust of everything that's coming here, Romans 5, 6 through 11, is amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I'm seen. I once was, was gone. I was, I, was a, I was a helpless, hopeless, weak sinner. Rebel, I hated God. But that's precisely when God wrapped his love around me and brought him in. Well, let, let's, let's think even more about Arlen Williams, because, uh, again, right, we're falling short. Uh, this word enemy, this is, this is wartime terminology. We're, we're talking about military. We're talking about hostility. We're talking about guns. We're talking about death. We're talking about shootings, slayings. So take this plane again, right? Air Florida taken off from Washington, D.C., and, and shortly after taking off, some guys stand up with guns in their hands. Three of them, they're all sitting in the front row, guns in their hands. They declare they're taking over the flight. They hijack it. They, they bang into the cockpit. They, they get there. They, um, they, they order everybody to the back of the plane so they can be up there. There's only one pilot, and the, and the gun is right there on, on the pilot. And after all things settle down, these um, hijackers begin to call people from the back of the plane to the front. And one by one, as they came up, they would slice their neck, let them die. Here you are on a plane. Your enemies are there. They've hijacked the plane. And they're killing, systematically killing everybody on the plane. And so when Arlen Williams, as soon as he figures out what's going on, he says, I'm next. I'm next. Right? And he starts walking up that aisle. But just as he walks that aisle, right, they, they crash into the 14th Street Bridge. And then they, 
they fall down into the, the icy waters. And, and when rescue crews get there to take people on the airplane, Arlen Williams realizes that uh, here are the hijackers, his enemies. And he hooks them up with a lifeline and takes them up and gone. And, and he gets only two of them up and he realizes, but there's a third. And so in the midst of everything, he goes, he finds this guy who had been knocked out, one of the hijackers had been knocked out in the midst of the crash, and he's totally unconscious. <clears throat> and Arlen Williams taking him and dragging him, dragging him, and brings him over and hooks the lifeline, takes it up. He saves his enemies, and he himself goes down. I think that's the picture of verse 10. If while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more that we're now reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. But Alan D. Williams is, is, is just a man, and these are fictional sorts of things, but I'm just trying to press into your mind just the, the level of hostility that we have towards God and what God has done to rescue us and save us, these salvation summaries. Because Jesus died for us, the very moment we had our guns pointed at him. And, and that's biblical. I guess maybe guns aren't biblical. But remember, Peter on the day of Pentecost says that, that he's the very one that you crucified. Whatever. You shot him. You put him on the cross. And that's the very one that is declared Lord and Christ, the Savior of the world. And I just say, such a rescue can only bring us to worship. I, I think that's the idea of verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. And you see here just the, the application of joy. The application of, of, of even more now, we, we, we rejoice. Yes, we will be saved by his death. And, and we need to rejoice in Jesus Christ because of all he's done. You know, in America, we'll, we'll take uh, Arlen D. Williams and he'll be a hero, right? We lift him up and there's memorials to him and stories told about him. He's a Wikipedia page. He'll live uh, forever just honored. And rightly so, I tried to honor him today because of the sacrifice he did. And so likewise, right, we, we live the rest of our days rejoicing in Jesus Christ, honoring him thanking him, loving him for the incredible rescue that he did to us while we were enemies. And we've talked a lot about Romans chapter 4 and justification. Justification is the, the legal reality of what God has done for us in Christ. So legally guilty, we were sinners condemned. And so legally he justifies us. But there's also one here, relationally, a new language starts to pop up. There it speaks about we are reconciled. Verse 10, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. It's twice reconciliation. It comes a third time in verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now receive reconciliation. This is not the legal standing of condemned in often our sin. The Bible speaks about many facets and angles of the cross. And one is the legal angle, but this one here is the relational angle. That we who were estranged from God, we were enemies, we were part of a dysfunctional family, but now we have come together in a fully functional family that God has, has brought us in. It's something that he alone has done. It's, it's not like, like we did anything. 
In fact, it is interesting. I mentioned this before, but there's, there's, faith isn't even mentioned here. Now, it's implied, right, that we, we believe. That's the only way we have of righteousness before God. We believe in Christ. But the emphasis here is just what God has done for us when we were weak, when we were sinners, when we were his enemies. And you think about how hard that is, right? If you have an enemy, just think about an enemy. Maybe someone you don't like to speak to or who has been openly hostile to you. How hard it is to love that person. And how hard it is to, to get over that. But, but mind you, church family, when Jesus died on the cross, every single one of us were that way. He died for, for weak, sinning, rebellious, enemy people against him. He died to make the church spotless. It wasn't spotless and lovely first. It was yucky and dirty and gross and filthy. But he died to make it clean was his aim. And now he's bringing us together. We've been reconciled, just as uh, Brian read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That's, that's what it's about, the ministry of reconciliation. There it is, speaking to others, ambassadors, to say we can be made right with God. We were his enemies, but by his death, we are made right with him. And this is partially what chapter 5, verse 1 is getting at, right? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, right? God is at peace with us. We are at peace with him. There's the reconciled relationship. And I just say, right, if you're eager to preach the gospel, verse 10 is another one-verse evangelism. While we we're enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Memorize that verse. What's the message? What would you hear this Sunday, right? You're talking to people at work, right? What would you hear this Sunday? Well, I heard the message about how we were enemies against God, but were reconciled to him by the death of his son. See where that goes. But I would just say this. We need to rejoice. And one great way to rejoice is in the Lord's Supper. We're going to transition there. It's our, a couple more weeks left of every week just celebrating the Lord's Supper, just again reflecting upon the cross of Christ. And there's no better way to reflect upon the cross than these verses here. Just how bad it was and how good it is. We've heard the bad news and we've heard the good news. The bad news of our sin and the good news of God's grace. I just think about, now we're not singing this, Ryan, but you do such a good job, Ryan, about picking, picking songs and texts. I thought you would have picked this one today. Jesus, thank you. Once your, help me, once your enemy now Seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. And that's what it is. That's where we ought to be. We ought to be saying, thank you, Jesus, that once we were your enemy, we were hostile to you, but now you have seated us right there at your table. Now we are, are reconciled and made right with you. That's right. You eat with friends, right? You eat with reconciled people. And that's what the Lord's Supper is about. It's for his friends. It's for his reconciled people. It's for those who know, know Jesus. So just, we'll, we'll do what we've been doing the last couple of weeks, right? Leading up to Easter, just relentlessly focusing upon the, the cross of Christ, remembering that last supper when he was gathered around there with his disciples. And, and during, during the meal, the Seder meal, if you've ever been to one, it's, uh, it's an exciting thing. If you ever get invited by a Jew to go to a Seder meal, Go! Because it's so much points of Christ. They have different things they do with the bread and different things they do with the cups and different ceremonies. They all remember Moses. And Jesus broke it and said, now remember me. And particularly, what are we going to remember today? That we are weak, but Christ died for us. And that we were sinners and Christ died for us. We were his enemies, 
And now we're seated at his table. What a better time to rejoice in the Lord's Supper. Let's, let's bow our heads and pray. Oh, Father, we, we do thank you for the, the blood of Christ. God, that we are justified, it says, by his blood, justified by his death upon the cross. Lord, and how is it that we might live in any other way other than seeking you with our, our whole heart for all of our, our lives? We get to chapter 6, we realize grace, Paul's going to ask What then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Oh God, that's the question we ask ourselves and that's where we are headed in Romans. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How how can we who joined up with Christ and are made righteous, how can we still live in sin? That doesn't make sense. And so Father, I would pray that Even as we search our hearts and our minds here this morning, God, that we might eat of the bread and drink of the cup in a worthy manner. God, search our hearts. God, show us our sin. May we be quick to confess our sin. God, may we take the bread and rejoice in the cross of Christ. May we drink of the the fruit of the vine and and think and reflect upon the the sacrifice of Christ. That, That you bring us into your table by your grace. By your blood. Thank you for these salvation summaries. I pray, O oh Lord, even this week that you would use these in our mouths to declare your praise. God, for the, the goodness of what you've been to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.